your Bibles and turn with me now to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. As we've been studying through the book of Genesis together, we have been looking at the life of Abraham. That's the section that we're in right now. Where scripture highlights several important moments in Abraham's life. From this life, the life of Abraham, we are able to learn several important lessons about what a life of faith is all about. What true faith is and what a life of faith looks like. But at the center of everything is not so much a focus on Abraham, nor even on the practical lessons that his life can teach us. At the center of it all, driving everything in this record of his life, is a portrait of who God is. What God is like. What God is up to in the world and how he is working in the lives of his people. And what makes these accounts in Genesis so important for us and so relevant for our lives today is what they teach us about God and his timeless characteristics. You see, the God that we read about in the Old Testament, even as far back as Genesis, is the God who exists today. So this is not a portrait of God working in an unusual way only at one particular moment in history. This God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we see about this God in the life of Abraham is meant to help us understand who God is in our lives today. The first 15 verses of Genesis 18 that we looked at last week centered on this crucial question in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a question that Abraham didn't just have to wrestle with, but that's a question we have to wrestle with as we walk through this life today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We learned last week yet again by God's words of assurance to Abraham and to Sarah, that God is not only good, but He is also in control and all-powerful over all things. And so He is perfectly trustworthy. Nothing is too hard for our God. And if that is true, then we can and we must trust Him with everything. We must follow Him with every part of our lives. We must submit to Him with every part of who we are, and we must rest in Him, and we can at all times. What we saw in chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, is both a declaration of God's infinite power and a demonstration of His tender love and compassion and patience with His people. He is a God who will do everything He says He will do. And yet He is a God who understands that we struggle sometimes to understand exactly what He's up to. And He will shepherd our struggling faith 
from one moment to the next, reminding us that it is not our task to understand and be able to explain every movement of God, but simply to trust that nothing is too hard for Him. Now, the passage before us today, which moves on from those first 15 verses, we're going to look at chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. This passage takes on a little bit of a darker turn. But at the same time, it continues to show us crucial characteristics of who God is and how He interacts with mankind. And so the focus of these verses is on the mercy and the justice of God. Mercy and justice of God toward mankind according to His righteous purpose for the sake of His glory. That's what we're looking at this morning. This text is, un, is an unusual text, and we're going to approach it in a somewhat unusual way. But it is a text that will prove powerful in preparing us to hear and to receive the gospel of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, which is His purpose through Abraham. So let's look at this text together. If you'll follow along as I read Genesis 18, starting in verse 16, these three visitors have come to visit Abraham, and they have sat and had a meal with him. And we learn in the first part of chapter 18 that one of these visitors is Yahweh himself, who has come and had this meal with Abraham. Now the meal is over, and we pick up in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, that is, he said to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That question shows that Abraham knows what God is going to see when he goes down there, and he knows destruction is coming. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to, de to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in this city, 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Now I say this passage takes a darker turn because it is transitioning us into the tragic account of God's judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, beginning in chapter 19. This is a transitional passage because we still have the beauty of the Lord's meal with Abraham, fresh in our minds from the first 15 verses. And yet the conversation is looking ahead toward the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that God is about to pour on them. And with these two pictures in mind, we have this, this contrast between Abraham, the friend of God, and the wicked who are the enemies of God and how God relates to them both. And so we have this convergence of scenes here in this one passage. And this conversation between the Lord, between himself first, and between the Lord and Abraham next, is in the context of a historical narrative. It presents to us Two massive character traits of God all at one time. And it teaches us how God relates to men. And it leads us to consider where we stand with Him today. And so I want us simply to look primarily at two character traits of God this morning. But yea, even we will consider three when it's all said and done. But the first thing I want us to notice this morning is that God is merciful. That God is merciful and he will save his people. Now we see this beginning in verses 16 through 19, but really we see it throughout the entire life of Abraham and in God's relationship with, with him. Not just here in this passage, but going back to the beginning of the record of Abraham's life in chapter 12. That is what God is highlighting here in verses 17 through 19 as he reasons through why he is going to tell Abraham what he's about to do. In contrast to the character of the wicked and the judgment that befalls the wicked, 
Abraham's life is a display of the mercy of God and the gracious salvation that he gives to his people. This is an important point to consider as we prepare to look at the judgment he's about to pour out on Sodom and Gomorrah. How did God show mercy to Abraham? How does he show mercy to his people even today? Well, by looking at the life of Abraham, by considering the snapshot of this text today, I can see at least five ways that God is merciful toward his people. Let's not overlook, first of all, the very basic observation that God shows his mercy by speaking to his people at all. Who is Abraham? This moon-worshipping pagan from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, that God would speak to him. And who are we? That we would have the very word of God sitting in our laps this morning with any knowledge of who this holy God is. Who are we to have the very Son of God, our Savior, revealed to us, that we would have the Spirit of God working in our hearts to help us understand and respond to what God has revealed? Friends, we need to understand that there is infinite mercy in the fact that God would speak to us at all. It is an unspeakable mercy on our part, unspeakable for us to to ever express how great it is that God would reveal anything to us about himself, about his design for this world and his plan for its timeline and his purposes for us. If God had not revealed any of this to us, if God had not spoken we would be eternally lost in our sins, and justly so. But in His magnificent mercy, God has spoken to us in His Word. He has revealed Himself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, it isn't merely that God has spoken to us that shows His mercy. Not only is God merciful in speaking to His people, but he's merciful in what he has to say. God's mercy is evident in that he calls his people. He speaks to his people. He calls his people. Look at what God says of Abraham in the first part of verse 19. For I have chosen him. Who is Abraham, this moon-worshipping pagan from Ur of the Chaldeans? Who is he? He's the chosen of God. That word chosen has the idea of God's own foreknowledge as well as God's decision to set his divine favor on Abraham and to set him apart unto himself to receive his blessing and commission. And it is this Abraham who stands, as it were, as our spiritual forefather, for in the New Testament we find that all who are in Christ are, in a sense, children of Abraham. So it isn't just that God set his favor on one man there, but through that man eventually led to the Messiah to open the way so that all who are in Christ would be recipients of this grace, this divine favor, this eternal election of God himself. God has spoken 
And God has set his love and favor on his people and has indeed invited us into a relationship with him. And so closely related to that, thirdly, God is merciful in saving his people. He speaks, he calls, he saves his people. Consider all that we've seen from the life of Abraham so far. God spoke to him in Ur of the Chaldeans in chapter 12, verse 1. He called him to leave his pagan homeland. He called him to follow him into a new land. And in this, the Lord saved him from his false religion, set him apart unto eternal life. He rescued him from godlessness and the eternal punishment that would have come if he had stayed in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. This God spoke to Abraham. This God called him to leave and he rescued him. He brought Abraham into a new life, a life of faith and blessing. This salvation is a gift of God. Now, not only that, but fourthly, God is merciful not just in speaking and calling and saving his people, but also in transforming his people. Look at what the Lord says about Abraham in the middle of verse 19. He says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, in the context of what this passage is covering, that seems to be a little out of place, doesn't it? What's going on? Why is he mentioning this about Abraham? Well, I think in one sense, he's setting up a contrast between Abraham's character and the character of Sodom. But in another sense, I think he's also painting a picture of the work that he has done in Abraham's life and the mission that he has called him to. He didn't just call him to leave that land and be rescued from the judgment, but he put him in a new land with a new character and a new mission in life. This is complete transformation. God didn't just save him from something. He saved him to something, to a life that is transformed into godly character and mission. And what we see in Abraham here is a life of faith that has God at the center of everything. And I'm going to pause right here because all of you are listening to that beeping. Is it off? Okay. The alarm means nothing. It's just, there's not, it's not connected to anything. It's just a noise. All right. He has spoken. He has called his people. He has saved his people. He transforms his people. The calling of God on Abraham's life was over his household. It was over his character. It was over his behavior. It was over his relationships, his family, even his land. Everything in Abraham's life had been transformed by this work of God. There's one more aspect of God's mercy that we can see in the life of Abraham, and that is this. He preserves his people. He speaks, he calls, he saves, he transforms, and he preserves. Where do I get that? Look at the end of verse 19. Why has God done all of these things, and why is God doing what he is doing here in Abraham's life? He says, so that. That is the purpose of this. The purpose of all of this is that 
the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. And what did God promise to Abraham? Look back in verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. This is a, a promise that is as good as done, but is still to be fulfilled in the future. Right? So God has made a promise to Abraham that demands that he preserve and protect him all the way until his fulfillment. And not only for Abraham, but also for all of his descendants. So where God has spoken, and where God has called, and where God has saved, he also has transformed, and he preserves all the way till the end. What mercy. And this is where the mercy of God applies to us even here today. As these visitors rise from supper with Abraham and God prepares to explain the judgment he is about to unleash on Sodom and Gomorrah, we find here an unexpected glimpse of his mercy. This is the image that he leads with, that he is a merciful God. And not just to Abraham, but also to us. This God has not dealt with us according to our sins, has he? He has been gracious and merciful toward us. He has removed our sins from us if we are in Christ as far as the east is from the west. He has called us into union with him through our crucified, risen, and now exalted Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in God's mercy displayed toward Abraham summarized in these verses here is a picture of how God relates to all who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in verses that we are becoming very well acquainted with. In Romans 8, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is Paul's New Testament summary of what we've just seen in the life of Abraham. God makes himself known to us. He calls us to eternal life in him. He saves us from our sin. He transforms us and he will preserve us all the way home. And he does this through life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, this is a God who is wonderfully merciful. And it is necessary that He be so, because without it, we go the way of Sodom, as will be described in the next two verses. We desperately need this God to be a merciful God. And we desperately need to know of His mercy, because this passage doesn't just highlight the mercy of God. In contrast to God's mercy that is shown in the life of Abraham, this passage also highlights in verses 20 and 21 the justice of God toward the wicked. This is where God tells Abraham what he is about to do and why. God is just and he will punish the wicked. 
We live in a society that loves to talk about justice today. But nobody wants to talk about our own guilt. Nobody likes to talk about justice when the arrows of justice are turned toward us. We have seen already throughout the book of Genesis that God is just and He will punish the wicked. You look at the first 11 chapters and it's full of it. God cursed the earth in chapter 3 because of mankind's sin. God punished Cain in chapter 4 for murdering his brother Abel. God denounced the degradation of mankind through sin, constant sin throughout chapters 4 and 5. God destroyed the earth thoroughly because of man's sin in chapters 6 through 9 by a great flood. God confounded man's language and scattered him throughout the earth in chapter 11 because of his refusal to obey God. And all along, mankind has descended deeper and deeper into his inherent sinfulness. And all along, God has shown not just mercy, but he has shown glimpses of that judgment that is to come. And we have seen that God is just and he will punish the wicked those who have never received the forgiveness of sins that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, as we've seen with the life of Abraham, so now we can see in this passage, in the life of Sodom that we'll see in the next chapter, there are several things we can learn about God's justice and judgment. First, notice that God's judgment is patient. That even in his judgment, he is merciful. Where do I see that? Look at verse 20. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Okay, there are several words we need to consider there. The first one is outcry. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. What is that referring to? The word is usually used in the context of victims who are crying out for justice over their oppressors or those who have mistreated them. This is the cry of the victimized, the ones who have been harmed by sinful debauchery. And it's important that as we consider Sodom's sin in the coming weeks, it is crucial for us to understand that it was not just about homosexuality. That is a sin. It is a prominent sin in Sodom, but that was not the starting place. That was not the root sin. That was just one of many depraved manifestations of a much deeper sin problem within them. In fact, Ezekiel 16 says it was pride that showed up in all manner of innumerable, innumerable ways of mistreating one another. In other words, the problem with Sodom is the same problem that we have seen progressing throughout the entire book of Genesis and that is prominent in the hearts of every man and woman in the world. Having denied the authority of God and having declared independence from Him, mankind no longer respected the image of God in man, but began mistreating mankind. And we saw it in the first 11 chapters. How does that usually manifest itself? Two prominent ways. Violence and sexual perversion. And that's what's going on in Sodom. 
And that same downward spiral is described in Romans chapter 1. And so this, this outcry is figurative language that highlights God's awareness of all the ways that Sodom and Gomorrah had been victimizing each other through deception and through vice and through violence and through sexual perversion, and it was over a long period of time. He didn't punish them at the first sight of sin. Praise God he doesn't do that. But the point is that these cities had, had devolved, had gradually descended into such a gross level of sin. And even in Romans 1, we can see that their level of sexual perversion is an evidence of how far they had descended. And the other terms that we need to consider are the names of the city, of the cities themselves. Sodom means burning. Gomorrah has the idea of submersion. The idea there is that these cities had become consumed and flooded with sin, or as the Lord has described about other places throughout Scripture, that it has been filled up. He had been patient, but now the cup is full. And that word grave has the idea of heaviness or weight, as it was in the days of Noah, and as it would be in the days of Canaan. So here, God had been patient for a long, long time, but their, their sin had reached its height, its saturation point, and judgment was now to come. Friends, God is very patient in His anger. But there is a time limit. There is a saturation point. God's judgment is patient. But there is more that we notice about His justice and judgment here, and that is, secondly, His judgment is fair. His judgment is fair. It might seem to us a little strange in verse 19, a little bit of an overreaction, that because a few guys did a few bad things, God is going to completely obliterate a city forever. And yet if we think that's an overreaction and that their sin was just a little deal, we have very much misunderstood what was going on. The words that describe the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah are serious words. The outcry, God says, is great. And their sin is very grave, as all sin is. This is not a small matter. There is no innocent mistake here. The language that is used here to describe this, and in other passages of Scripture, describes their sin as outright rebellion against God, just as the sin of Adam and Eve was, just as it was in the days of Noah, just as it was in the promised land before Israel came in. And so the devastating fire and brimstone that we will see in chapter 19 is not a knee-jerk overreaction by a moody God who is just having a bad day. It is a fair and just judgment on mankind's sin. It is fair because God is accurate in His understanding and His assessment of sin far more than we are. 
And that leads us thirdly to consider not only is God ju God's judgment patient and fair, but it is accurate. Look at verse 21. God says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether accordingly to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God says, I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to go down there and look at how bad it really is. Now, he's not going down there because he's not so sure that the reports he has heard is, are accurate. He's going down there to demonstrate that his judgment is an informed judgment, that it is indeed as bad as he says it is, that it is indeed as serious as he says it is, that his knowledge of them is full and accurate. This is, after all, the God of heaven who knows all things, including the deep, dark secrets of the hearts of men. King David testifies of this in Psalm 139, when he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And he goes on to explain that before I even think to speak a word, you know it. That's how deep and accurate God's knowledge is. And so his judgment is accurate. This God knows us better than we know ourselves. And his assessment of each one of us, just like it was at Sodom, is perfectly accurate. God will make no false accusation. God will not exaggerate, and he will not overreact. And when we read in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, we may not like what it reveals but we cannot deny its accuracy. And it might be uncomfortable to us, but that's only because we have yet to understand the depths of our sin. God is just. He will judge the wicked, and His judgment is accurate. And if this offends us or seems too harsh, it is only because we do not understand how serious sin is really is. And with those things in mind, I want to make a couple more observations about God's judgment based on what we already know of the story in chapter 19. God's judgment is patient, it is fair, and it is accurate, but we also need to understand, fourthly, that God's judgment is severe. And again, I don't mean that it's an overreaction. What I mean is severe judgment is appropriate because sin is severe. So when we see the fire and brimstone consume these cities and all that surrounds them, we see a glimpse of the greatness of sin, of the depravity of sin, of how, how severe and ugly and vile it really is. And my friends, it is a glimpse. It is only a glimpse for Scripture teaches of a far greater judgment that is eternal, that is still to come, that will rest on all who are not in Christ Jesus. And Jesus spent much of his earthly life teaching about hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the Apostle Paul describes in the book of Revelation the lake of fire where everyone is cast whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life and they will be there forever. This is a picture of the severity of our sin. 
It is a picture of the severity of God's judgment, not just on Sodom and Gomorrah, but also on all of the wicked for all time, forever. And not only is his judgment severe, but his judgment is comprehensive. No one escaped. You say, wait, Lot escaped? I know that. and We'll get to that. Lot and his wife and his two daughters, but at that they had to be pulled out almost against their will. And we'll talk about that at another time. But there was no part of these cities that was left unburned. This is a picture of the comprehensiveness of God's just judgment. And it will be on all the wicked. Only those who are rescued by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. This Christ who bore God's severe judgment in our place. For we who are in Christ, it's not that God didn't pour out wrath, it's that he poured it out on Christ instead of us. So, why is this so important? Because, my friends, as it was with God's mercy, so it is with God's judgment and his justice. What we see of God in Genesis 18 and 19 is who God is today and who he will be in the future. And if you are without Christ this morning, that will not bode well for you. The scripture makes undeniably clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. Friends, that's eternal death. And yet, by God's infinite, matchless grace and mercy, we also read that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But we don't have to be victims of that judgment. We can be rescued because God is a merciful God. And so I urge you, this morning, if you are not in Christ, now is the time. Today is the day. Why would you wait? We implore you, as Paul says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you can be, because for our sake, this God made Christ to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, God's judgment is real. But so is his mercy. You can be delivered from the dreadful judgment of God by calling on the merciful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, I, I want to make one more point. The main focus here is that God is merciful and will save his people. And God is just and he will punish the wicked. But I want us to notice something else very clearly. That God is patient. And he will work through his people. What do I mean by that? God is patient. Verses 22 through 33 are a private dialogue between God and Abraham. And it appears that Abraham is bargaining with God or bartering with God like he's haggling over a used car. 
But I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think what's happening is Abraham is wrestling with what he already knows by experience about God's mercy and what he is now learning about God's justice on the wicked. He's wrestling with this. And so in verse 23, he asks God, will you indeed sweep away the the righteous with the wicked? And he says in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. God, this is not according to the character I know about you that you would sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Now, in a way, Abraham is reasoning much like Job's friends. If you are righteous, it will go well. If you are not, it won't. Straight up black and white declaration. Interestingly enough, I think Job's friends and Abraham are somewhat contemporaries. So maybe this was the prevailing spirit of the day. Abraham does not have the benefit of the Psalms and the prophet and, and the Proverbs that indicate that actually sometimes in this world, the wicked and the righteous do get washed away together. That sometimes the righteous do suffer because of the wicked. But also that sometimes the wicked prosper because of the righteous. But what Abraham does do well here. And something that he models for us is the heart attitude and the earnest response that the righteous ought to have to the reality of God's mercy and justice. Look at how he responds to what God says. These verses show us that God is patient and he will work through righteous people like Abraham. And we see this in two prominent ways, righteous intercession and righteous influence. First, notice that Abraham is moved to prayer, to righteous intercession, and I think God meant for it to be that way. I think God described what he was describing for the purpose of putting Abraham into a spot where he's left to call out for mercy. And his sensitivity shows what Abraham's heart attitude was about the whole situation contrary to how many professing Christians respond today. Abraham did not say, yes, Lord, finally, burn those perverts. As we see so many Christians in their attitudes today. No, Abraham was moved to compassion, to grief. He seemed to have a good understanding of the gravity of the situation. So when he's pressed into a corner, on their behalf, he gets bold. So bold that he questions God's character to his face about what he's about to do. Humbly, willing to be taught, yes, but still bold nonetheless. And he roots it in a concern for the name and reputation of the Lord. Abraham was not marked by a vindictive, combative, or harsh heart nor by an indifferent, careless, and uncaring spirit. He had a heart of compassion for men, and he had a zeal for the glory of the Lord, much like Moses would at Sinai when he interceded for the people of Israel when they sinned. We could say a lot more about that, but I want to just leave that there as an observation and a lesson for God's people today, that this ought to be our heart before the Lord. 
And then secondly, not just righteous intercession, but also righteous influence. What I mean is this. Abraham was praying that God would spare the cities on the account of a few righteous people who still were there. I, I get the sense almost that God cut that discussion short after the number 10, sort of indicating to Abraham, hey, I hear you, but there aren't any there, except for Lot. The New Testament calls Lot righteous, so one. But this is how God has worked throughout history, that God actually promised to spare the entire city on account of a mere 10 righteous people who belong to him. This is how God has worked in many ways at many different times, using the righteous influence of his people to be a blessing to the world at large. Even to those who are lost in sin, that God has extended common grace to the unbelievers on account of his own people who are still standing firm. This is what Jesus meant when he said that the disciples are the salt of the earth. Again, there is plenty more we could say here, but I simply want to let that observation sit and show us how the effective prayers and the godly influence of God's people are ways that God shows his patience to a sinful world. We need to see that. We need to embrace that. And we need to live it right here today. So, Christians, what do we make of a passage like this? Well, first of all, let's pause and think about God's mercy to us. And let's rejoice that he has rescued us from his judgment by bringing us to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then let's pray. Let's pray with broken hearts. Let's pray with grieving and compassionate hearts for God to save more people, to make them righteous in Christ as he has with us. Paul talks about that at the end of Romans. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Let's consider the mercy he has shown to us and beg him to extend it to others too. And then let's strive to live as a righteous influence in this world so that God will use us as means to extend that mercy and blessing to others. And for all of us here today, I urge you to examine your own hearts earnestly and honestly before the Lord who knows all things. Friends, where do you stand with God? He is a just God, and he will punish the wicked eternally. And if you are not in Christ, that will be you. If you have never come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are one of those wicked. One of those wicked ones who stands condemned under the just and accurate and severe and comprehensive judgment of God. It is no use denying your sin. God already knows. It is no use downplaying your sin. God decides what's severe. 
God means what He says. He is just, and He will punish all who are apart from the saving mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You, my friends, need to acknowledge today, this moment, that you are such a sinner and that you need such a salvation. But then you also need to know that God is a merciful God. And He will save His people from their sins. And He will give them peace with God and eternal life. And what's more, He is a patient God who is allowing you, even now, an opportunity to acknowledge your sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus who at the cross, who stood in your place and bore God's just punishment for your sin, is now waiting and allowing you an opportunity to believe. But my friends, his patience will not last forever. His judgment is coming. And perhaps even now he has set his face toward you, as he did toward Sodom. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. You don't know what this afternoon may bring. But friends, I plead with you. Now is the time. Today is the day. Do not wait any longer. Cry out to God for mercy. Turn your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. He is merciful and He will save. Our Heavenly 